Viruses unleashed upon the world. Let's finish up Mission Impossible 2 and save this world. Hi, this is Tom Pizzotto. And Dan Silvestri. Of SpyMovieNavigator.com. Join us each episode as we're cracking the code of spy movies. Subscribe to our show, tell your friends about us, and give us a five-star rating on your podcast app. Let's finish up Mission Impossible 2. We left off our discussion once McCloy was stung by Ethan. So let's go. All right. So as Tom said, we're going to get back to where they're attacking the biosite headquarters. It's a very well done scene, and Hunt and Luther are planning how to get into the biosite building. At the same time, Ambrose is explaining how he thinks Hunt will do this, and he gets it right. <laughs> we have to remember Ambrose is an agent gone bad. So as Ambrose talks, we see Hunt performing the steps that Ambrose is laying out. So And when, Ambrose has worked with Hunt before, so he kind of has a feel for yeah. how Hunt will do things. Yeah, and he thinks, Sean Ambrose thinks, that Hunt is going to do some kind of aerobatic insanity, crazy stunt thing before he'll risk harming a hair on any of the security guards and so on by coming in on the, on the main floor. So he thinks he's going to do something from above, probably. So we cut to the helicopter going to the top of the tower and we see Hunt hanging from a helicopter and then we get to the atrium dive. This has a similar feel to the Mission Impossible 1 vault heist in the way that he's tethered down and he almost hits the floor. He comes and just stops right before he hits the floor, which you see him do. It's kind of his trademark now, the the way they do that. Now, as in the Mission Impossible 1 scene, in this scene where he goes through the atrium in Biosite, There's no score during the drop. Actually, for two minutes and 44 seconds until Sean Ambrose starts talking again about how Hunt will do his mission. So there's no score. There's noises, but there's no score. Yeah. The IMF team talks with each other, but again, no score. And it's something that we're going to see in future Mission Impossible movies as well. So here we got Hunt being lowered down through this atrium. They're kind of like shutters almost that open only at certain times. And that lets the light in down this shaft so it lights natural light through this building down to the glass panel that's just above the laboratory so this is how they have to lower him down so no wait dan didn't you say when you were talking about chimera and bellerophon something about the air yeah through the air or something right now you got to remember right the the myth that we talked about before of chimera and how bellerophon was helped by pegasus to kill chimera because Pegasus could fly, and so Bellerophon shot the Chimera from the air. Here, we have Hunt attacking Chimera from the air as well. I thought this was a very neat tie-in. Yeah, that, that really is. So Ethan uses a laser-based glass cutter to cut the glass so he can enter the room where the Chimera is stored. Now, in Skyfall, the henchman Patrice uses a similar automated but it wasn't laser-based, but it was a similar automated glass cutter to cut in a window so he could shoot across to another building. So these automated glass cutters are very handy for these guys just to happen to have in their kits. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) One one thing I didn't get, though, is how Ambrose would know, or more importantly, how Hunt would know that the last remaining Chimera virus would be there with three injection guns. I mean, where'd they get that? Ambrose tells us that Hunt will destroy the virus in the incubation room first, and then go where the injection guns are. For some reason, he won't be allowed to destroy the virus in those guns. I mean, is that because Ambrose's team's going to be there to stop it? 
this part to me didn't hold and it was really important for the plot. I thought that from the video clip of Dr. Nikorovich with his hands in the inoculation chamber, the, the guns were visible. Well, if you're talking about the scene right at the beginning of yeah. the movie, there are three guns and four vials there. They don't really show him the loading the gun from the vial. There's a vial there, but it looks, they never actually see him load it. Yeah, and I mean, he, he sends shoots. that tape to them, but it doesn't yeah. include him shooting himself with one of the guns. Yeah, and if there right? were three guns in that scene and he shot himself with one, are there only two vials? That this, is, this didn't hold for me because if you look at what he did at the beginning versus the way the setup was when they got there, yeah, something happened in between that we never saw. Okay. And also when he's talking to Dimitri on the plane, he doesn't tell Dimitri that what's in the gun is all they have. Right. right? That there's no more chimera virus. They've, this is the last of it. Right. So it just seems a little weird that Ambrose would have that because he didn't get that information or we didn't see him get that information. Yeah. Yeah, there is a little disconnect there, I think. Uh, of course, the doctor's keeping it all a secret that he injected right. himself. But yeah, you're right about the gun part. Yeah. We, we have to, we've watched it several times. I went, still I don't went know, back so. and looked at it and I'm like, they don't tell you this. So how does Ambrose know that's the last of it? Yeah. Well, this whole scene is a little odd to me anyway. I thought Ambrose is neatly narrating what Hunt is doing and will do so that it's all wrapped up nicely for the audience. Nice little bow. <laughs> it's a, a simple little device to tie confusing things together and tell us what is happening. It's a clever tactic and a clever way of telling us what's going on. And well, you have to believe, wow. They know everything about this guy. And, well, and, but maybe they did that because of some criticism from Mission Impossible 1. So when going through this, I, I was looking at IMDb, mm. and there was a post in the trivia section there where they talked about the fact that people thought the plot of MI1 was too confusing. For mm -hmm. some people, it was. So there's a point early on where Ethan tells Luther the plan, and Luther says, oh, it's that simple then? Yeah. And then as we go on... You hear the explanation of what's going to happen multiple times, uh -huh. multiple people telling us this is a simple plot, yet they have to explain an awful lot of stuff to us to try to make sure that we, the stupid audience, can't follow along with whatever this simple plot is. Yeah, the simple plot is complicated in parts, and not that complicated, but anyway, this basically tells us if you're not paying attention Listen to this part. <laughs> and exactly. we'll tell you what's going on, okay? So, all right. Exactly. <laughs> all right. So let's put it together. Let's yeah. put the complex, simple stuff together. Ambrose knows Hunt will have to go to two places mm -hmm. the incubation room and where the Chimera is. That he will destroy Chimera as opposed to preserving any of it. Yeah. So first he goes to the incubation room. And then finally, in the inoculation chamber, they hold the last three guns. Ambrose can't let Ethan destroy the last of Chimera. So Ethan punches into the computer system something to kill the virus in the incubation room. Well, yeah, he, he's raising the temperature and the, the raised temperature, yeah. like in the human body, when the one of the reasons you run a fever is to kill whatever's... Yeah, uh, this reminds me, and if you've seen this movie, Stanley Kubrick movie, 2001, A Space Odyssey, it's the same thing of the Hell 9000 computer. <laughs> In 2001 Space Odyssey from 1968, when Hell kills the three astronauts in hibernation, 
for their long trip to Jupiter. It's the same thing. System alert, chimera organism terminated, blah, 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 <laughs> beep, 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 you're dead. <laughs> so uh, this is it. So 1968 to 2000. So, wow. Okay. All right. So anyways, Ethan ends up entering the inoculation room. Yeah. He grabs one of the three guns and fires it. And then he grabs the second one and fires it. And then he grabs the third one. And Hunt realizes that Dr. Nikorvich had injected himself with the virus, which is why on the video he says he must get to his destination in 20 hours. Yeah, that was a hint. The virus was in him and he died in a crash. So what is Hunt going to do? Just as he gets that third gun, the final piece, Ambrose and his guys shoot their way in. And they'll kill Hunt and get the virus. Yeah. At least that's their plan. Yeah. I mean, Luther's monitoring all of this activity remote. How they always have such great surveillance equipment, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's, I've got a laptop, and all of a sudden I can get to anything. Yeah. Almost all of these spy movies these days do this kind of thing, and it brings in this unwelcome dose of fantasy to what are usually pretty tense scenes. So we then see Ambrose's team come in. They kill the security guards on the main floor because they don't care about the, the security guards like Ethan may have. Luther says that Naya is in the biosite building. I guess that tracker that injected her is still working. Good thing. So now Luther and Billy know that Sean is there. But for some reason, with all this kick-ass equipment, Luther can't communicate with the generator running. And it's running. But he, he can, can still do all his tracking, Dan. He can still he can do all his tracking, but he can't communicate with Ethan. Kind of like being on the far side of the moon for astronauts. You can't, yeah, you know, you're in the dead zone there, apparently, when this generator is running. It doesn't make a lot of sense to us, but somehow from his rearview mirror, this is another interesting point. Luther could see a counter on a bomb placed under his van. Okay. I don't know how you do that from a rear view mirror. Maybe he's got one mirror bouncing into another mirror, blah, blah, blah. And he's got everything covered on his van, but <laughs> somehow he sees it and he escapes the van with his computer, of course, before the explosion. So that's, that's nice. So that's good. But the, and there is the explosion though. There is an explosion and it's a good one. And okay. It doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense, but he's out with the computer and that's the important thing. He does get out with the computer, but it's damaged. We don't hear that here, but we hear about it later. Okay. All right. So there's a big fight scene in the lab, of course, and we're not going to go over all the details, but it's a great fight scene with a great score of music. And it adds certainly to the tension that is unfolding in the movie. I mean, it's a good fight scene it, and we, yeah. we short shrifted it a little bit here just because we don't need to go through everything, Yeah. but it, it really is a good fight scene. The gunfight is a good one with Ethan sliding on the glass-covered floor because glass is exploding all over the place while firing at Ambrose and his goons, like Bond sliding on the ice at Peace, Gloria, and Our Majesty's Secret Service. So anyway, Ambrose tells this guy to hold fire, and there's some chatter going on. The last gun of the virus is on the floor between Hunt and Ambrose. Ambrose and his guys have Naya, and now they bring her out to try to get Hunt out from his hiding. And he sends her to get the injection gun and tells Hunt he's responsible for what happens to her now. Luther survived the explosion. He's coughing amongst the flames and everything else, telling Hunt that Naya's in the building. Well, he kind of knows that now. <laughs> Hunt is trying to get her to think, hey, what makes you think he won't shoot you as soon as you give him the gun? So Hunt's trying everything here 
to convince Naya, don't give him the gun. Ambrose says, another weird thing. (laughs) (laughs) Women are like monkeys, mate. They won't let go of one branch until they get hold of the next. What might he mean by the word branch? Branch might be a euphemism here. I don't know. I'm not sure. But we got several lines in this movie that you got to wonder about. Okay. And Naya injects herself with the virus from the last gun because there's a fight over the last gun. This forces Sean to keep her alive, of course, because you got to keep the virus alive in her. All right. So, so this whole scene, this whole fight and everything, it ends with Ethan parachuting out of the building. And right before he does that, he tells Naya, just stay alive. I'm not going to lose you. Now, IMDb talks about this and how it mirrors a similar scene in the 1992 movie, The Last of the Mohicans, hmm. in which Hawkeye tells Cora, just stay alive. I will find you. And then he jumps down a waterfall. Okay. So this might have been inspired from that scene from The Last of the Mohegans. Yeah. Once again, the score continues until right after Ethan jumps. It stops when the parachute opens and doesn't come back until after two scenes when Ethan says, unless we dose her with Bellerophon, Naya will kill herself. So first things first, and then the score comes back. The first of these short scenes has Sean in a car with Naya and asking if she wants to plead for her life as he's holding the Bellerophon. She slaps him, and he leaves the car telling her she's going to be the Typhoid Mary of Oz. (laughs) The second scene is Luther complaining that until he gets his damaged computer to boot, he can't track Naya. Yet he was able to do communication after the generator stopped, after the explosion with his laptop messed up. (laughs) But now all of a sudden he's got to have the damaged computer to boot. There are limits to everything. (laughs) He can't track Naya if we remember... When they injected Naya with the thing, only one computer could track her. Yeah. So Luther's got to get this computer back up and running. Yeah. Meanwhile, Hunt is scaling the bluffs of the compound, Ambrose's compound, on the water, communicating with Billy and Luther, who say it looks heavily guarded, and they ask him what it looks like from where he is as he's kind of peeking his head over above the cliff onto the landing where he's trying to get to. And he says, risky. (laughs) All right. If you know anything about Tom Cruise, risky business in 1983 was his first major role. And there's no question in my mind, our mind, that he's referencing risky business when he says risky. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So then we get to the scene with McCloy meeting with Ambrose at the lighthouse. The IMF team is trying to infiltrate the building, and there are a few very nice fight moves by Ethan as he gets into the building. This is where we see yet another trademark of John Woo. We've talked about a couple of them. He likes to have these pigeons and doves in his movies, Mm -hmm. and we see them a few times in this scene when Hunt is getting into the compound. Well, we saw this in For Your Eyes Only 2 in 1981, directed by John Glenn, and of course, pigeons were used as real spy gadgets in World War II, and so on. So birds and spy movies has a, a history, but... Yeah, and we can't forget last December's animated spy movie, Spies in Disguise, <laughs> where the lead spy turns into a pigeon. Yeah, so there you go. We got birds all over the place. It's like an <laughs> Alfred Hitchcock movie. Uh, all right, so let's get back to Mission Impossible 2. <laughs> when McCloy meets with Ambrose, 
They run a test and are told by the lab technicians that the blood he tested, which we assume came from Naya, is loaded with Chimera, and that the other substance tested was Bellerophon. So now they've got both. Yeah. McCloy says he has 30 million for Ambrose, who says they don't want only cash, but stock options in that value. He then calls someone and tells them to cut Naya loose in the center of Sydney. Uh Why? So why did they do it this way? Well, he asks how quickly more Bellerophon can be made because there's going to be an outbreak of Chimera in Sydney. 17 million people in Sydney will need Bellerophon in the next few days. This will force the stock options to be worth billions and Ambrose will own 51% of Biosite. So Dan, there were a bunch of numbers in what I just said. (laughs) And he's talking about options and the options market is something that Many people aren't familiar with how options work. Yeah, this... So how does he get to this 51% of Biosite by getting the stock options off of $30 million? Yeah, you think if it's $30 million he's spending, he can't buy half the company with $30 million. So this was a little confusing to me and a bit convoluted. But to make it simple, there are 93.4 million shares outstanding in the company. The bad guys, Ambrose and his goons, want 480,000 options. So how many shares can you buy with an option? A hundred. That's one hundred. So they will take his thirty million and buy the options. Those options allow him to buy the shares at thirty-one dollars a share. With the stock price expected to shoot north of two hundred, he'll make billions of dollars off of the game. That's how. That's how it is. But it's confusing in the film. It's like. How yeah, the heck can he get half the company? That explanation was nice and crisp. I mean, because options can get very confusing. Yeah. And now we got more birds. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get to the birds, the important stuff. Back, back to the birds. <laughs> Hunt creates an explosion and a bird flies through the fire as Hunt walks past the burning door. Uh, again, another woo use of birds. <laughs> this, this is followed by a lab technician with his bare hands closing up the two vials, Chimera and Bellerophon. Given all that's going on with the COVID pandemic today, I would have assumed he would have at least been wearing <laughs> some kind of latex gloves or something yeah, to protect him. This is bare hands on these, on these vials that supposedly have this deadly virus. Yeah, what the heck? Hey. <laughs> so Stamp and a few of his henchmen go out looking for a hunt, of course, because they're thinking, this guy's still here. All right. Hunt is hiding near the ceiling and of course there's a bird right next to him another bird (laughs) whose movement lets stamp identify where hunt is okay hunt starts another explosion by shooting some tanks to make them explode well we've talked about this trope in other podcasts and how blowing up a tank creates a diversion foreign identity comes instantly to mind for this trope and so on So Stamp radios into Ambrose that he has Hunt, and Ambrose tells him to bring Hunt to him. And Stamp drags him in, hands tied behind his back, and Ambrose shoots Hunt in the leg. He's such a nice guy. Yeah. Hunt doesn't speak, and Ambrose says, Stop, stop mumbling, as he toys with Hunt. He mumbles because Stamp says he probably broke his jaw. Ooh. Ambrose ends up unloading his gun into Hunt, only to see the bandaged little finger on Hunt's hand a little too late. (laughs) Remember when Ambrose clipped the end of Stamp's finger off? 
with the cigar cutter. This is when Ambrose realizes it was Stamp and he pulls off the mask of Hunt from Stamp's head. The real Hunt who has been wearing a Stamp mask. Where did he get those masks? Yeah, where uh, did they get that mask? A, a, in this complex, anyway. I, well, actually, I, they had two masks. So they had to have Ethan as Stamp and Stamp as Ethan. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> Maybe he's got them in his pocket. They're not that small, though. <laughs> Uh, anyway, he runs out the door with the Chimera and the Bellerophon. So, I mean, it was made obvious throughout the the movie after Stamp had his piece of his finger cut off that he had it bandaged. He had it bandaged at the track. He saw it bandaged during a fight. And yeah, again, remember, this is supposed to be so simple. Yet they have to tell you and tell you and tell you that this is what's going on. Well, I mean, they... They're trying to wrap it up for us nice and neat into a little package. In case you missed this, <laughs> we're going to tell you again. <laughs> so, okay. All right. I don't know where all the masks came from. I mean, maybe Hunt was carrying a bag with him, a backpack or something when he was climbing the cliff. I, I don't remember. But the, the, <laughs> he's got the mask, which is pretty damn handy. <laughs> yeah. Now, now, this scene is driving me crazy because it's right out of another movie that I can't remember which one it is. Mm. I've been looking for movies, trying to figure out which one it was. I believe in the other movie, they've got a hood covering their face and they get killed because they couldn't speak. So I couldn't find it. Dan, you couldn't f figure I out which one I was talking about. I'm going to reach out to you, our community members, to help us out. Yeah. If you know what scene I'm talking about, go to spymovienavigator.com. There's a big red button that says, leave us a voicemail. Tell us who you are, um, what movie I'm talking about. I just can't remember it. Help us out here. We'll play your message with your answer in an upcoming episode. We'd really appreciate it because this has been driving me crazy for quite a while that I can't remember what movie that's from. Yeah, so if you know, let us know. Also in that scene, we see people shooting with two guns, one in each hand. Yeah. And on the director's cut, uh, John Woo said part of his inspiration from this was Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. That's immediately what I thought of when I saw that. That's exactly the movie I thought of. <laughs> yeah. And he said John Wayne movies come into play with that as well. If you remember, Rooster Cogburn has the two rifles and the, the reins in his teeth yeah. in oh, True yeah. Grit. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. So it's definitely something that he's been inspired by. He also used this technique in some of his Hong Kong movies. That's what he called them. So he had done a bunch of movies originally in Hong Kong. And he used that technique there. So shooting two guns at once was something that he had both Sean Archer and Caster Troy do many times in John Woo's earlier movie called Face Off. Oh, yeah. So like the birds and the crosses, these are John Woo trademarks. You see him in his other movies. He brings them forward here in Mission Impossible 2. If you see all three of these things in a movie, chances are John Woo was involved in that movie. All right, let's move on to the motorcycle chase scene. All right, so then Ambrose's men chase Hunt, and Hunt gets on a motorcycle. Yeah. And the chase and fight scene comes out of this. It's a good fight scene, and the motorcycles do do some nice stunts. Yeah. Um, especially there's this front wheelie they do that I'd never seen before. But, I, like, if you're into Fast and Furious and stuff, I don't know if they do the, that move there, but I'd never seen it before. Mm. So that was pretty cool. But for me personally... And I don't know why. I prefer car chases to motorcycle chases. There's only a few things you can get done on a motorcycle. And quite honestly, get bored quickly with these. 
Yeah. Um, there is a there is a shot where Hunt rides his motorcycle through a fire, which is kind of cool. But we've seen stuff like that before too. And John Woo said he was thinking of cowboys on horses, but used motorcycles instead. Huh. He likes the flexibility that the motorcycle gives to make things more interesting than if it had been on a horse, which really would have been out of place for this movie. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you remember my discussion about shooting a handgun at the beginning of this episode where I actually went and shot a handgun, this chase has a lot of shooting, mainly with handguns, and it's just amazing to me after my experience on the, on the gun range of how they can just shoot and fire and a lot of times hit what they're pointing at when they're doing this move, and I just don't understand how that happens. Yeah, and what's amazing to me is that they're not only spinning and firing and so on, but... When Ethan Hunt spins and fires, he hits his target usually. <laughs> but when the other 99 people chasing him are spinning and firing, they miss. <laughs> well, that's because they're not Ethan Hunt. They're not as well trained, obviously. They're not as well trained. <laughs> I think the stunt work in this series of shots with the motorcycle chases is amazing. The cinematography is, is stunning. But the motorcycle chase is like... I don't know, seven minutes long or something? It's long. <laughs> yeah, I thought too long. It, with some of the same spinning and firing stunts done multiple times, I would have been happy with like a three-minute chase scene and cut this thing. So that, that's right, it. So let's get into the end of the chase. Right? Yeah. There's a point where Sean Ambrose and Ethan Hunt jump off their motorcycles and they smash into each other. And when I saw this, my mind was instantly brought back to the fight scene between Scar and Simba in the animated version of Disney's The Lion King. Uh, Lion King. Because it's almost exactly the same. If you actually, I've actually put them side by side. Yeah. It, it's almost the same shot. Yeah. Now, John Woo says, though, he likened it to jousting from medieval times. Again, back to the horses. Mm -hmm. Maybe from the movie Ivanhoe. However, to me, this was Scar and Simba. This wasn't jousting. It was cool but it definitely had that same feel to me. Yeah. That's a good symbolism, especially side by side. Like you said, they look, yeah. they look identical. Very, very identical. Yeah. So, of course, they're, they crash into each other there off the motorcycles, and now it's the, the fight turns into fisticuffs on the ground. They're on the ground now with martial arts moves included and all this kind of stuff. I mean, they're fighting hand-to-hand -hand combat here. And Tom Cruise did... Most of these stunts, including the two-footed twisting kick, which pretty amazing, actually. That was a pretty impressive kick. <laughs> I, yeah, you got to be impressed with that one. I think and they I, actually, they trained him right before they did this. Yeah. He didn't have a ton of training for that. So Ambrose has this knife and he tries to stab Ethan in the eye. And when they filmed this, they had the knife on a cable set to stop one quarter inch from Tom Cruise's eye. And Dugray Scott who played Ambrose, he's told, make this look like you're really trying to move this thing. You won't be able to get it past a quarter inch from his eye. <laughs> now, in Face Off, again, going back to that other movie John Woo did, there's a scene where John Travolta's character sticks his gun in the henchman's eye. And so to me, this really kind of felt like a twist. Now, in that movie, the gun was like on the eye, not a quarter inch above it. Uh -huh. But this, this knife really seems to be a twist on what Wu did again in Face Off. And it also reminds me of the stunt that Tom Cruise does in these movies where he falls to the ground and stops just before he hits the ground. Yeah, yeah. It's his signature move here. 
it's like the knife is doing the exact same signature move. Yeah. All right. So let's get to the ending. We see Naya, of course, she was theoretically infecting everyone, having been cut loose in Sydney or whatever. But as we remember before... How do we know this thing transfers through the air? Yeah, we don't know exactly how this this works, really. But they know that it needs a living organism because if she dies, it's dead. So, right. and we remember Hunt saying that you know, she's if she has no other choice, she's going to kill herself before right. she allows this to happen. Now, how they make that big leap that she's going to kill herself from her being a thief and everything else, I don't know exactly. There was a part of the movie where she admits she has a conscience. So maybe, maybe this well, is part of it. She but... injected herself to keep herself alive, not trying to kill herself because yeah. she was an insurance that... Ambrose couldn't kill her because yeah. he needed the virus. Right. So is it she has a conscience and is like, yeah, I'm not going to infect everybody else. The virus will die with me. Yeah, and that I part know. I thought was a little weak. And the timing, we see her now standing on this big cliff. And we are to think, of course, she's going to throw herself off the cliff and kill herself because, geez, they're not saving the world with the Bellerophon yet or with her. And the, the, the clock is ticking away. I don't know if we know at this point how many of the 20 hours has passed. Do we? There, I seem to remember there is a clock scene, but Luther asks and, and Hunt says not long. So yeah. I, don't re, I don't remember if they have it down to the minute kind of a thing. Yeah, so that's the excuse, I guess, for her going to throw herself off the cliff is the timing is the time is running out now if i were her i'd be thinking i gotta take every last minute to see if they're gonna save me i'm not throwing myself off a cliff but earlier we were told the guy that nikorovich was working with died it was later than 20 hours if you last 20 if you get you can't be saved you can't be saved after 20 hours right and it looked like a really nasty death Yeah. From the 20-hour mark on. Okay, yes. So maybe there's some of that going on here. And Hunt did tell Luther and Billy to go find her so and leave him alone where he was. So there's an excuse for them being in the helicopter looking for Naya. I don't know and how... And of course they, they find her. I don't know how they were going to find her in a helicopter flying over Sydney, but... Or wherever <laughs> they're, they're they flying. They have a tracking device. Ah, that's true. They do have the tracking device. But the computer was messed up, but apparently they got it fixed by but, then. Yeah, that part actually was working now. Okay. Yeah. That, so that part was good. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so while this is going on, the fight goes into really the last phase mm-hmm. of the fight. It's a, I mean, this was a long fight sequence that happened Between here. Hunt and Ambrose on the cliff after yeah. the motorcycle thing, yeah. 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 And it ends up with a kick from Ethan that knocks Ambrose down, and he hits his head on a rock. He looks like he's dead. Ethan pulls away from punching him again. Yeah. So he backs away. Yeah. And of course, as he walks away towards the helicopter, Ambrose points a gun at Hunt and says, you should have killed me. Yeah, he's right. He's right. He should have killed him. (laughs) Now, if you look at the philosophy of Wu, we'll get back to what happens here in a second. But if you look at John Wu's philosophy, he says, in my movies, the bad guy never dies. That's my theory. I think no matter what you do, the evil is still alive. And so Hunt thought that he had had him killed, and we see, nope, he didn't have him killed. The evil was still alive. Yeah, but he should have so, killed him right then and there when he had him down. He should, he <laughs> like should've. any good spy would have. 
<laughs> so Ambrose has his gun on Hunt. Hunt kicks a gun from the sand that just happens to be in perfect position for him to kick it into the air. He turns and shoots Ambrose multiple times, and it looks like Ambrose is dead this time. So after the fight, they have to show the hero look at the girl and see that she's recovered yeah. because they shot her up with the Bellerophon. Yeah. Wu says he likes a tragic ending, but he wanted a happy ending in this movie. Given what happened to Jim Phelps in Mission Impossible 1, the ending conversation with Ethan and Mission Commander Swanbeck was intriguing. Ethan, it, it was kind of a disjointed conversation, and Ethan lies to Swanbeck. He tells him he doesn't know where Naya is, and he appears very distrustful of Swanbeck. Yeah. And I think that probably goes back to what happened with him and Phelps. Is he now more distrustful of authority? Well, and also Swanbeck did lie to him and deceive him in getting Naya involved in the first place, saying you're going to get her because she's a great thief. And really, they wanted her because of her relationship with Ambrose. So he has lots of reasons to distrust Swanbeck. Well, that's true. In the end, they're ordinary people walking in a park just like other people. Yeah. Being ordinary people. Yeah, it looked like a Surratt painting, you know. They had to put that in there because he wanted it to be a love story. So. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> to me, he wanted it to be a love story. That was a weak ending yeah. walk in the park. It's okay. All right. So you can kind of hear that this probably wasn't our favorite Mission Impossible movie. No, it's not this. our favorite Mission Impossible movie. But I think there's some elements in Mission Impossible 2 that are cool and advance the storyline. And that part is good. And there are some weak parts, and we pointed out some of the weak parts. But I think all in all, if you're a Mission Impossible fan, you got to see Mission Impossible 2. If you haven't seen it for a while, go back and see it again, especially now with the pandemic going on across the world. It takes on a new meaning. It takes on a new a, feel. takes on a new meaning. Yep, yeah. absolutely. All right, so now we're at the end of the movie, and Tom's going to tell us about the Beretta that he shot uh, just about a month ago and what that experience was like. So I had shot rifles before, but I'd never shot a handgun. And I went to this range. Now, for me, there was more kick to it. It was louder than I expected. Yeah. Almost every shot I had was about two inches low. The shots where they hit in the head were by the guy who I was there with. <laughs> and yeah. the other thing was... I had to aim like five or 10 seconds before squeezing off a shot. In these movie, these spy movies, all of them, there's no apparent aiming. They just turn, shoot, and fire. Well, well they're highly trained, and, and you are not. I'm pretty close to this target. Yeah. We then moved that target. It was 10 or 12 yards down. I hit the person in the shoulder on one of the shots. I have no idea where the second shot went. Yeah. So distance, and in these, in these movies, these spies are shooting at a distance as well. Distance really makes a difference on your accuracy. Accuracy. So it was an interesting experience for me, given all the spy movies and how much gunplay there is in spy movies and how accurate some of these guys are as they turn and fire. Well, I mean, a Beretta is a short-muzzled pistol, so you, you, the longer range you have, the less accurate it's going to be. But it was impressive to see what that really felt like. Sure. But I did. it's put some of these gunfight scenes that we see like we see in Mission Impossible 2 in perspective for me. Yeah. All right. Well, now we got Tom's perspective on shooting Berettas and his accuracy rate. <laughs> <laughs> and you can see that spies are well-trained in their firing weapons, and that helps. All right. They, they have to be. <laughs> this is going to be a wrap of our Mission Impossible 2. This has been Dan Silvestri. 
and Tom Pizzotto of SpyMovieNavigator.com. And that's a wrap of our Cracking the Code of Mission Impossible 2. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends about our show, Cracking the Code of Spy Movies, and give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app. That helps us a lot. Do it now. Thanks.